You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, UF Phonies. <laughs> That's a Lauren title. Of course it is. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And appearing for the first time in years, the music man himself, Ian James. Yay! Woohoo! It's good to have you back with us, Ian. It's good to be back. Thank you so much for contacting me and asking me to be here. It's been a long time. I haven't seen you guys in ages. Well, it's hard with you exiled to British Columbia. Yeah, but now that we're all exiled for the good of the realm, it uh, made sense. <laughs> exactly. Yes, but I put a mountain range in between myself and you folks, so. <laughs> we are dangerous. <laughs> we still pulled you back in. Yeah. Well, hopefully when you cross the mountains again, you can appear on the show more often. Yes. Before we get into our topic at hand tonight, I figure that I might as well talk about something that's going on for me. So as some listeners are probably aware, for the last several years, I have been uh, back in school part-time, off and on. Uh, getting some prereqs out of the way. And last year, I talked about my experience prepping for the MCAT. So I just thought I'd give everybody an update. Uh, I did learn just last month that I was accepted into med school at the University of Manitoba. So I'll be starting in September. Yay! Yay! Excellent. I'm very excited not to be in the tech sector anymore. And... Also very excited to have zero income for the next several years. <laughs> Yay! Your excitement puzzles me. And also to be very busy. Med school is, after all, how we lost Rochelle, one of the original hosts of the show. Hopefully I'll be able to uh, pull through. We need you. <laughs> I'm not doing this alone. Uh, I, 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 might take a, I might take a sabbatical here and there, take a month off, but I don't anticipate that you'll have to... Soldier on without me too much. More movie reviews are in our future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say nothing but easy topics from now on. <laughs> Speaking of easy topics, today on the show, we are talking about UFOs. And specifically, in a lot of cases, the people who fake their UFO experience. We've covered the topic of UFOs and alien claims more broadly on the show a couple times before. On episode 112, when we asked and answered the question, did aliens build the pyramids? And uh, on episode 122, called UFOs, where Lauren talked about Roswell, Ashlyn talked about Canada's own Falcon Lake incident, Laura told us about the Disclosure Project, and I talked about government investigations into UFOs, and then did more Chariots of the God stuff, because I just can't leave Eric Von Daniken alone.
As I believe we discussed on our last UFO episode, Project Blue Book concluded that less than 2% of UFO sightings are attributable to deliberate hoaxes. Most seem to be honest cases of, I saw something in the sky and I did not know what it was. That seems super low. I don't remember talking about this at all, but that just seems super low. Yeah, I agree. But despite uh, being relatively rare, uh, regardless of how rare indeed they are, the deliberate swindles are often the splashiest and have a disproportionate impact on our pop cultural understanding of UFOs. Because the misidentifications are, you know, I saw something weird in the sky. The hoaxes are more like, here's a photo of a flying saucer, and also, it killed my dog. <laughs> Or it turned this cow inside out. So a lot of what we were going to cover on this episode falls into that apparent less than 2%. Because these are the ones that get picked up in pop culture. Uh, so in this episode, we're going we're gonna to try to go in more or less uh, chronological order, uh, starting with some of the earliest UFO sightings that, uh, that have not yet been uh, discussed on the show. So uh, I'm going to start off with the Maury Island incident. Does anyone know where Maury Island is? No, I do not. Never heard of it. Is it near Maury Povich? Right beside uh, Ricky Lake. Hey! <laughs> Paternity Isle. Ooh, yes. I used to come home from school and watch that horrible show. Uh, so Maury Island is a tidal island in Washington's Puget Sound. The island is uh, probably most familiar to non-Washingtonians, however, for its association with the men in black. Who are you? Really? Really? I am just a figment of your imagination. Nice. No, not those men in black. The, uh, the real men in black. Or, well, not the, not the, not the real, you know what I mean. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get there. So, to set the stage, it's June 1947. Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl, two harbor patrolmen, are on a boat near Maury Island. And they look up to see six donut-shaped objects in the sky. This is where we insert some clip from Thrive, I assume. We, we, we can't get away from those Tauruses. So Dahl and Chrisman reported that one of these Tauruses dropped something that they describe as like lava or uh, some sort of white liquid metal onto their boat, which uh, killed a dog, and broke one of their workers' arms. Though uh, how metal so hot that it's liquid could break someone's arm is anyone's guess, especially since Robert Patrick wouldn't be born for another 11 years. <laughs> Though I guess he could time travel, so... Come with me if you want to live. What if it's that, like, what is it called, gallium that melts at, like, skin temperature? That could break your arm if you dropped enough of it. Yeah, I, gu I guess so. Yeah. I mean, a sufficient, a sufficient volume of mercury if it hits somebody. Yeah. It could happen. So, uh, Harold Dahl also alleged that he was approached after the incident by a strange man in a dark suit who insisted that he tell no one about what he'd seen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you will, look right here. So this does appear to be the first instance of anyone claiming to be contacted by a man in black in connection with a UFO sighting. Chrisman and Dahl related their claims to Arnold Palmer, 
the aviator often credited with inventing the term UFO, and Palmer uh, was convinced. Is this the same Arnold Palmer that's behind the drink? (laughs) No. Presumably not. (laughs) That's the golfer. I'm assuming this is a different birdie. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Palmer then contacted the Air Force, and two Air Force intelligence officers were dispatched from California to investigate. The officers examined samples of an otherworldly metal, metal fragments that Chrisman and Dahl presented as evidence of their claims, and the Air Force intelligence officers concluded that it was uh, simply scraps of aluminum and nothing particularly interesting. (laughs) The Air Force intelligence officers did not report their findings back to Arnold, apparently uh, to avoid embarrassing him, because he was all in on these two being the real deal. And the uh, Air Force folks boarded a return flight to California, whereupon their plane crashed and they were both immediately killed. When the FBI subsequently investigated Chrisman and Dahl's claims, they concluded right away that the whole Maury Island incident was a hoax. Apparently Chrisman and Dahl weren't even harbor patrolmen, as they had claimed. They were just two guys. (laughs) Uh, The FBI files uh, describe several mutually contradictory stories that the two men had concocted and then related to local media outlets, newspapers and the like. And the FBI concluded that the guys had invented the tale, quote, in the hope of building up their story through publicity to a point where they could make a profitable deal with fantasy magazine, Chicago, Illinois. Follow the money. Ah, yes. The get into fantasy gambit. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the Maury Island incident. Uh, it is still famous in Washington. They had a ceremony to commemorate the uh, the 70th anniversary back in 2017. Very big deal. It is the origin, uh, apparently, of the, the Men in Black uh, story of government spooks investigating uh, and hushing up UFO encounters. Uh, but uh, it is just two guys <laughs> trying to get a book deal. <laughs> That's all it is. Uh, which uh, I suspect will be a recurring theme. So why don't we move on to George Adamski? Laura? Okay. So George Adamski is one of the most prolific contactees out there. And he was not necessarily the first, but he was the first person to make such a big deal out of it and uh, become famous for being a contactee. He's very popular with the aliens. Um, He was very popular with the aliens. So a little bit of a backstory on George Adamski. So he was born in Poland and as an infant, he immigrated to the United States and grew up there in a relatively um, low income, working class family. Apparently he had very little formal education. In his early adulthood, he became quite interested in um, the occult movement of the time and in theosophy and uh, joined those circles there. So um, he was very much into the the idea that, you know, there is this one master religion that uh, has been forgotten, but the knowledge that remains uh, in the world today is mostly housed with the monks in Tibet. And they have the secrets to happiness and peace among all humanity and, you know, everything in the universe is connected and and all of that. 
so that's kind of where he got started. He worked a bunch of different jobs. He was in the army for a while. He was a painter. He was a milkman. He was all the all sorts of different things. But he became a minor celebrity in the um, California, mostly the Los Angeles, San Diego areas through this uh, theosophy movement. And he started his own temple. Got to start your own temple if you want to be you somebody. Gotta, you got to do it, right? You just, you can't not. Everybody who's anybody. So he founded his own theosophical temple called the Royal Order of Tibet. And he was a leader there and gave lectures. And he claimed that he had spent a lot of his childhood uh, in Tibet learning from these Tibetan masters, as they were called, where they preached things like uh, world peace and unity and how terrible the uh, atomic bombs were going to be for the Earth and the universe in general. So that's quite a an interesting divergence from what actually happened to him. Those seem like good messages. They, I mean, they are good messages. It's just that it didn't happen. That's that's <laughs> it. Yeah. And, you know, white European people starting an order called the Royal Order of Tibet in California when none of these people are Tibetan. And for someone who claims to have grown up in Tibet for several years, he didn't speak any other language but English. So that's weird. He was in silent meditation that whole time, I'm sure, so. <laughs> right, right. So he started that order there and had uh, a fair number of followers. Um, he, by all accounts, he seems that he was very charismatic, a very good storyteller, and he really drew people in. Um, after some time, he abandoned this temple, and he and his wife and some friends moved out to a different part of California, near an astronomical observatory on Palomar Mountain. And they tried to set up a little commune there to make a self-sufficient life, and it didn't work out so well. And so they stayed there, but they started a cafe. And this was a well-placed cafe because it was on the tourist route for tourists who wanted to go see the observatory and the telescopes. So there are some accounts saying that it was around the time that he wanted to leave his... Tibetan order that he was telling some confidants and friends that, you know, oh, I should uh, get into all this UFO crap. So that's something interesting to keep in mind about him, too. So why does all this matter for our story here? Well, as early as 1946, he was taking photographs of UFOs, um, the first of which I believe was a cigar shaped object that had several different lights on it that was in the sky. Um, and while it seems very odd, or at least it seemed very odd to me that he would choose or he would say this shape, apparently that was a common UFO shape at the time. These yeah. sort of cylindrical things, whereas, you know, we, we don't always think of it that way now. Yeah. You went through some some uh, cigar-shaped ones for a while, and then you had the toroidal ones, and then uh, then you had the flying saucers, the, the traditional shape that we see nowadays. Now we've got like the triangle ones, and I'm wondering if the whole cigar. Because I was about to ask that question too. Like, why a cigar? Is that like just of the time everyone was smoking cigar? Hey, I'm smoking a cigar. You know, was it like that <laughs> sort of vibe? And so that's in everybody's kind of zeitgeist. Then that's why you would see that in the in the in the sky. Like, I'm actually asking, like, what is the why a cigar? Because it's not a, you know. I'm at, I'm well, curious. Freud would say. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a UFO is just a UFO. <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. 
my totally uneducated guess would be that this was shortly after the Second World War. There was all kinds of new aircraft out, much bigger, slightly different shaped than people had seen prior. And there were many more of them. So more civilians were seeing these kinds of things. And of course, there was so much new technology as well that they were able to fly at different altitudes. They were they had different types of lights. They had different types of sounds. They had all sorts of things. So my guess would be that it stemmed from that. Makes sense to me. Anyway, so it started off in 1946 when he saw this uh, cigar-shaped UFO. And then the aliens just never stopped visiting him at that point. Um, in early 1947, um, he started taking more uh, photographs of, uh, of this. And on one day alone in 1947, he said that he saw more than 184 UFOs. It's a lot. Incidentally... These tended to coincide with forecasted meteor showers. Hmm. Nah, I doubt there was a link. <laughs> That's just what NASA wants you to think. Did he try wishing on them for star fragments? <laughs> so, yeah, he uh, he is one of the most prolific UFO sighters, even in just the sheer number of times that he would... Uh, he would encounter them. And he would go on to say to some of his friends and followers that um, he felt that the aliens were, or they weren't called aliens then. He would call them, you know, interplanetary ships. Interplanetary beings was the words at the time. He felt that they were going to visit him, that they were drawn to him, that type of thing. Again, he had a real knack for cultivating a following wherever he went and for getting relatively well-off people to fund his endeavors i'd like to be one of those people right i'm like a level two of that like i have the kickstarter and the patreon that worked out pretty well and <laughs> i just need to get to like level four and i'll be set i wonder how many ufo contactees these days are on patreon there's, <laughs> yeah, there's gotta be some them, and they eh? make youtube videos <laughs> that's shit, a good right? that's something that we could maybe look at for a future episode how crowdfunding has affected this whole um okay Jim. Ooh, we could do kick-started uh pseudoscience devices i'm sure there are some <laughs> oh yeah, there's probably lots. We've already done a couple of them, like that. Uh, what was it? The Nutripen. Oh yeah, I oh, right. I forgot that was crowdfunded. The horrible name, but <laughs> if you Google Patreon UFO sightings, the first link is Galactic Federation of Light. You can become a uh, a patron of them. They have a whole bunch of uh, tiers for UFO sightings. Oh my! And then there's a whole bunch of other ones. <laughs> we can do a whole show on that. Sounds about right. <laughs> So it wasn't until about 1952, or it was 1952, when Adamski saw more than just these interplanetary ships, but he came in contact with uh, one of these creatures. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) So it was during one of his expeditions into the desert with some of his friends slash followers. He would bring a bunch of people with him. And they would always have things, they would always have photographing equipment, they would always have a plaster just in case they needed to take castings of footprints, for example. He would always bring a bunch of people with them, but he would leave them at some point and venture far into the desert. Often there's rolling hills or, or small mountains in this part of the desert alone, and that's where he would get contacted by people. Of course. Yeah, he'd spend his 40 days in the wilderness. Right. Right. He would be the one taking the the photographs 
of the ships, say, hovering behind the mountain peak or of an interplanetary being in the distance, right? And he would come back. He would also apparently often carry a box with him that he never talked about in interviews, in his books, in movies, anything like that. No one knew what was in the box and no one knows where the box is now. So mysterious. <laughs> I know, right? Was it Gwyneth Paltrow's head? <laughs> <laughs> so... In 1952, he went on one of these expeditions, and that is where, in the desert, he met uh, the Venusian creature named Orthon. Now, Orthon doesn't speak English, but he communicated with Adamski with telepathy and hand signals. But apparently, Orthon did say boom boom when referencing uh, how nuclear war was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, 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 boom. Gonna shoot you right down. At all your feet. If you're home with me, would you in my house? Boom, 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 boom. Okay, now this story is starting to sound familiar, and I'm, like, afraid that one of us has covered it at some point. <laughs> well, so Orthon should kind of sound familiar. So Orthon is about five foot six, slender, tan, light-colored skin, long, blonde, wavy hair, very humanoid in a way, except that he wore some kind of a jumpsuit with a really wide belt, which was very similar to the alien character in The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm -hmm. which came out the year before. I was going to say, I think I dated that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Orthon comes back to visit Adamski and takes him on a tour of the moon and to Saturn, and he has counsel with other creatures and that. But Orthon becomes Adamski's sort of conduit to the interplanetary world, if you will, and lets him know that much like those Tibetan masters that had the key to world peace and universal harmony, there is a, a similar key between all the different types of planetary creatures between all the different planets. Orthon as well believes in a creator, but not something called God, and that all alien creatures believe in this creator and that all life and knowledge and whatnot comes forth from this. Our scientists seeded the primordial oceans of many worlds where life was in its infancy. This is very, very based in the theosophical view of things. He basically just changed the wording a little bit, but it's very much that. So he concocts a lot of these stories and then he meets up with a very credulous and eccentric filmmaker I guess whose name is Desmond Leslie who made a low-budget UFO film and helped him release the book Flying Saucers Have Landed. Now I'm not sure exactly why this became a bestseller, but it certainly did. And that's what kept Adamski in the limelight there. After this book was published, um, he became more of a household name and he was definitely revered among uh, UFO circles. And this book became one of the um, founding texts of the New Age movement as well. So it kept getting new followers as that movement grew. From there, Adamski never stopped lecturing. Um, he also decided to start calling himself professor at some point, I guess because he just professed a lot. Yeah, he, he professed to have seen aliens. Right. And um, 
Yeah, he just continued on with this. His stories would get bigger and bigger as time went on. One of his big beliefs from the theosophical movement was in reincarnation and karma. And so after his wife died in 1954, he started claiming that she had been reincarnated on Venus and Orthon had taken him there to see her. And also that Orthon had been previously a human on Earth, but had also been reincarnated on Venus. And the messengers that these masters have sent were people like Jesus and whatnot. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> was it a reincarnation station on Venus or was it like an implant station like Scientology? They've got one on Venus and Mars and all that kind of thing. It's sort of like these masters with this all-knowingness would just sort of reincarnate you and maybe pop you up wherever. So I don't know if it was a station per se. So, of course, when we, when skeptics and, and even some believers would look at the photographs that he took of things like the flying saucers or the things in the distance, they could see that there were problems with them. So one of his most famous photos of one of the flying saucers was determined to be a um, gaslit lamp or like a, a chicken incubator for chicks with some light bulbs attached on the bottom to look like landing struts. And one of the people looking at the photo said they could see the insignia of General Electric on the light bulbs that was in that photo. So that's good. They are a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, Universal. They, they can't, what, GE can't make flying saucers too? Come on, Laura. <laughs> and then another one is one of the photos that he submitted of this same flying saucer shape flying in front of the moon. He said that he took this photo with his own telescope. So he claims to be sort of an astronomer, but everybody who looked at his setup and the photos that he made said that it was an incredibly poor quality and obviously somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Um, anyway, so this photo showed this flying saucer in front of the moon. However, it doesn't take into account that photos taken through telescopes are actually inverted. So the flying saucer would have had the dome on the bottom, which would be very weird and not how it's represented ever before. So... Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. So George Adamski went on to sell his books and lecture and sell photos of, of UFOs right up until he died in 1974. He made a good career of it. Uh, by died, you mean was transported to Venus. <laughs> sure. I thought men were from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> did we have, a, as, a, as, a, as a species, did we have the knowledge of what like the atmosphere and stuff like that on Venus is like at this time? There were theories. We weren't as as solid in our knowledge as we are now um but scientists would have actual scientists would have been skeptical about these types of claims there right, yeah. um so for the other planets it's a little bit harder especially at that time but he also made claims of things like orthon took him on a tour of the moon and he saw farms and streets and things like that on it which we could definitely tell was not true at the time there was just canals yeah right yeah <laughs> I seem to recall that Adamski also, when called on this, claimed that like the Pope had validated uh, what he had said, and he presented like a cheap uh, tourist trinket from Milan as like a, a papal medal of honor or something. Yeah, that's really close to Venice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reaching here. Noted ufologist, the Pope. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. 
Yeah, he he would frequently say things like the Pope or uh, the monarchy of different countries would have uh, private audiences with him and that they believed him and, and things like that. And he he presented kind of whatever whatever would keep people paying him, basically. You got to admire the grift. <laughs> yeah, he's just hustling. He was. I was just picturing like John Lovitz pulling out his collar or something saying, oh, yeah, the the Pope believes me. <laughs> John Lovitz. Good reference. Yeah, well, I was going to go with Rodney Dangerfield, but I figured I'd update it to at least the 90s. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Still 30 years ago. Yep. Oh. Fuck you, wife. <laughs> and on that note, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, why don't we move on to Lauren, who will regale us with the woeful tale of Barney and Betty Hill. Brace yourselves, folks. As September 19 drew towards September 20 of 1961, while driving home through New Hampshire from an impromptu trip to Niagara Falls, Betty and Barney Hill, and their docks in Delcy, saw, and were apparently abducted by, a UFO. Their story, which was one of the first to be widely reported in the United States, set off a flurry of publicity, including newspaper and magazine interviews, a best-selling 1966 book, and a 1975 television movie. There's currently a long-form podcast called Strange Arrivals that details the case and its aftermath, and will give you a much deeper dive than I am. Though I'm going to go pretty lengthy here, there are a lot of twists and turns in this story. Both of the Hills were upstanding members of their community and active in their Unitarian Church and the NAACP. They were also an interracial couple in the early 1960s, which was unusual. Barney was black and Betty was white. That detail is important because some of the publicity that happened later gave the fact that the incident was blamed on stress because of their interracial relationship. Mm. Yeah. Despite the encounter happening in September of 1961, the publicity surrounding the case did not explode into public consciousness until October of 1965. Why? Well, the intervening four years included a bunch of related activities, including repressed memory therapy, a star map, talks to their church family that may have helped push Betty and Barney from, wow, that was a weird drive, to, holy crap, aliens. That might be a bit of an exaggeration. Betty Hill, a social worker, was already prone to believe in extraterrestrial life, as her sister had said years earlier that she had seen a flying saucer. And according to both of the hills, the craft was flying erratically, descending rapidly towards their vehicle and staying completely in view as the hills followed it slowly through a mountain pass part of the highway. Barney, who worked nights at the post office and sat on the local board for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, stopped the car as the craft hovered 30 meters above them and, with his binoculars, saw between eight and eleven figures looking out of the windows of the craft at him. One figure telepathically told him, stay where you are and keep looking. But as the UFO started descending and wings telescoped out of it, he jumped back into the car and the hills took off down the road. The car shook and beeped, and both Betty and Barney reported lowered consciousness and tingly sensation throughout their bodies. More beeping brought them back to full alertness, and they saw that they were more than 50 kilometers down the road, and they were missing a large chunk of time. The Hills arrived home around dawn, when they should have made the trip in about four hours. Both reported strange impulses. Betty insisted that they keep their luggage near the back door and not bring it into their bedroom. Barney immediately took a shower and examined his genitals, but found nothing out of the ordinary. Neither of their watches worked after this incident. Barney's nearly new shoes were scuffed. Betty's dress was dusted with a pink powder, and it was torn, as was their binocular strap. 
Their car had weirdly shiny circles on the hood, which for some reason the hills tested with a compass? And it sent the needle whirling around, though the compass functioned normally even a short distance away. The hills each decided to draw a picture of the craft as they remembered it, and then they went and got a few hours of sleep. On September 21, so two days after the incident, Betty reported it to the Pease Air Force Base, leaving out some of the details so they wouldn't think she was out of her mind. A longer telephone interview followed, with the report written up that the Hills had probably just seen the planet Jupiter. During the next week, Betty went to the library and borrowed a book by retired Marine Corps Major Donald E. Kehoe, who was the head of NICAP, a civilian UFO research group. Betty wrote to Kehoe and told their story, and he passed it along to Walter N. Webb, another NICAP member and astronomer, who was out of Boston. Webb interviewed the Hills, and Barney insisted that he had a mental block around some of the events, though he described the UFO and its occupants. Webb believed the Hills and reported it as such later. In October 1961, Betty started to dream. These dreams were the most vivid she had ever had in her life, and they lasted for about five nights. She told her dreams to Barney and to her sister, and thought about them a lot during her days. A month later, remember how long that's been, Betty wrote down the content of these October dreams. These notes detailed their drive and a roadblock that they may have encountered where they were surrounded by men who forced them to walk into the forest. These men were short and wore blue uniforms and caps. They had gray skin, big noses, and black hair. Despite her protests, Dream Betty was separated from Jean Barney and examined by a being that spoke English but less fluently than the being who appeared to be in charge. After skin scrapings, hair cutting, facial examination, and what appeared to be amniocentesis, which was not a common procedure at the time, though it had been performed as early as 1877. That's something I learned today. After this examiner left the room, Dream Betty struck up a conversation with the man who appeared to be in charge. She called him the leader, and he gave her a book with strange symbols as proof of her encounter. He also showed her a star map that told her where these aliens were from. As the Hills were leaving, Dream Betty's book was confiscated because the plan was apparently to wipe their memories and any physical proof was verboten. In late November, Betty and Barney had another lengthy interview with NICAP and detailed their missing time event. Someone brought up the idea of hypnosis to find out what really happened during the missing hours, and Betty agreed, with Barney being more reluctant but eventually going along. A year after this interview, so we're in 1962 now, the Hills attended a talk with an amateur hypnotist who recommended they speak to a professional to recover their memories. For our listeners, this topic should send up a whole bunch of red flags. Today we know that recovered memories are not solid evidence of anything, and this kind of therapy is harmful and a large contributor to the satanic panic of the 1980s. However, the early 60s were a different time. None of this had yet come to light. Hypnotherapy seemed futuristic and the answer to so many questions about the human brain. Another year passed, during which Barney attempted to forget the whole thing, and Betty thought even deeper about her dreams and what they might mean. She discussed them with a friend, who also suggested hypnosis, and she continued writing in her journal about her dreams and the encounter. So these are the same dreams that she had had for that five-night period. She just kept writing more and more about them. In November 1963, the Hills were referred to Benjamin Simon, a hypnotherapist in Boston. There's some extraneous stuff I'm skipping here, as this is already two years post-incident, and I'm already verging into gem-like lengths for this segment. <laughs> Again, for the full story, check out the show notes, or the Strange Arrivals podcast, which has some actual interview footage with the Hills about this time in their lives, and it's way more skeptical and balanced than advertised. 
it's good to know that it takes a skeptical lens to the uh, topic. Yeah. I had heard a bunch of uh, advertisements for Strange Rivals, and based on the uh, promos, I had thought, ooh, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> so back to the hills. Simon hypnotized them between January and June of 1964 in several sessions, obviously, not for six months straight. <laughs> <laughs> These sessions were conducted one-on-one, and Simon had Barney and Betty forget what they disclosed, so they couldn't talk to one another about the incident in between sessions. Barney's hypnosis sessions were very emotional, and he insisted that he kept his eyes firmly shut for most of the encounter, though he believed the kidnappers were speaking in a different language, but telepathically he was hearing it in either English or in some sort of way he understood. He underwent a physical exam, but because he had his eyes shut, he didn't recall most of what was going on while he was going through this physical exam. Recordings of his sessions included very painful crying and screaming, as if his repressed memories were causing him extreme trauma. Betty's sessions were also emotional, but with more crying and less yelling. Some of the details and timeline presented while Betty was under hypnosis were different from her dreams of two years before, and they also differed widely from Barney's repressed memories. Simon gave Betty a post-hypnotic suggestion to draw the star map that the leader of the crew had shown her, and this star map that Betty sketched later took on a life of its own. But back to our timeline. We finally reached October 1965, when the Hilds became overnight UFO celebrities. How did that happen? Reporter John Luttrell of the Boston Traveler had been given an audio tape of the 1963 talk that the Hills had given. He also had notes from confidential meetings with UFO investigators. The day after the story was published in Boston, it was picked up by the United Press and became a worldwide phenomenon. In 1966, John G. Fuller Jr. secured the rights to publish a book about the Hills' experiences, which was called The Interrupted Journey. Fuller wrote several articles and books about purported extraterrestrial and supernatural occurrences. His book The Interrupted Journey included a drawing of the star map, as described by Betty Hill. Everybody else confused yet? Falling asleep? We're heading into Chariot of the Gods length segment here. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost done with the timeline, I swear. <laughs> in 1968, an anthropologist, elementary school teacher, and amateur astronomer named Marjorie Fish read The Interrupted Journey and was motivated to create the star map in three-dimensional space to see if she could determine the vantage point from which it was created. It was 1968. She didn't have a computer for this kind of modeling. Fish used beads on strings hanging from her living room ceiling to simulate stars and planets, and she pored over star charts in the Gleave Star Catalog to see if she could find anything that matched our sun and any star that would be a starting point for this purported journey. Her first attempts led to nothing, despite being extremely detailed, with one of these maps having over 250 stars. Imagine having that much time. <laughs> yeah, hanging from her living room ceiling. She was just like really into it mm -hmm. hey some people do puzzles yeah some people play animal crossing some people try to recreate star maps from hypnosis sessions uh, recovering memories of alien abductions why not whatever makes you happy mm -hmm. so she's got these 250 stars hanging around her, her living room ceiling but they didn't amount to anything a few years later as humankind's knowledge of outer space broadened fish did find a match these travelers must have come from the binary star system of Zeta Reticuli. Must have. Fish had her map and methods checked and rechecked by astronomers and physicists. And here enters our old friend Stanton Friedman, oh, ufologist, no. <laughs> who spent the rest of his life convinced of this star map. R.I.P. Stanton. Fish shared her findings with NICAP's web. Remember, like from 100 years ago when I started this segment, he interviewed Barney and Betty shortly after the incident. So she shared them with Webb, 
And Webb, Friedman, and Fish sent the map to the then editor of Astronomy Magazine, a man named Terence Dickinson. Now, Dickinson didn't believe in the map's veracity, but he invited comments and debates on the star map from the magazine's readership. Letters came in for the next year for and against the map. Dickinson eventually published a full-color magazine special edition detailing the map and the year's worth of debate, and he was legally threatened by Carl Sagan for including his name on the cover and letters that Sagan had written to the editor inside. The issue was pulled from the shelves. Terence Dickinson was later fired. Nice. Sagan was not convinced that the map was genuine, of course, and he demonstrated on Cosmos in 1980 that without the lines that uh, Betty Hill had drawn, the map was gibberish. He claimed that you could scatter any random dots on a paper and eventually, looking hard enough, find a map or layout of items that matched. I mean, especially since there's billions of stars in the sky. Yeah. Marjorie Fish, scientist that she was, later publicly rejected her previous hypothesis of the star map's origins when new data showed that her star distances and placements were completely inaccurate and also that her belief that some of the stars listed would have been able to support life-giving planets. That was also proven erroneous. So she went, nope, science doesn't agree with it anymore. I believe the science and I'm not going to double down. Wow. That's refreshing. You may ask. How did Betty Hill recall the exact placement of stars and trade routes on a map she saw once and then only drew out more than two years later? Well, as proven by the previous data, she didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But hypnotists that work to recover repressed memories were operating under the belief that our brain stores every piece of memory like a computer does, and, given the correct stimulus, can recall everything even the placement of random dots you only saw once during a very stressful time of your life. Definitely not. This faulty idea about human memory gave us the repressed abuse memories and the aforementioned satanic panic scare of the 1980s. In a nutshell, our brains don't work like computers. Human memories, whether new or old, are jumbled and not completely reliable. Our brain has evolved to link memories to feelings, usually as warnings of, don't do that again and is not above changing the fine details to get its point across. We are also very susceptible to our memories being altered or influenced by what we hear and see afterwards. There is no pure memory storage waiting to be cracked open. A personal case, I have a distinct memory of sitting in the upstairs hallway of the house we moved out of when I was five years old. It was my birthday, and someone asked me, do you feel older? Memory Lauren answered no, and was promptly spanked for being mouthy. (laughs) (laughs) This never happened. For one, my parents were not proponents of corporal punishment, and even if they were, what reasonable person would hit a child for that answer? And I do count my parents as reasonable people. To reiterate, my parents are lovely people and would never have smacked tiny baby Lauren for asking a question. (laughs) But this memory persists in my brain. Who knows what the actual different events were that ended up in the brain pot and made this ghoulish goulash? I was very proud of that. I hope you uh, appreciate that wordplay. (laughs) Our brains are really bad at memory, and there is no possible way that Betty Hill would have remembered an accurate star map. This is also an excellent reason why we should film every encounter with police, and they should never be allowed to turn off their body cameras until we defund and abolish them all. Nice. Anyway, (laughs) what are the Hill's other memories? Both Barney and Betty recall details, if not exactly the same, phenomena. Now, with there being two years between the night in question and the hypnosis sessions, you can be sure that both of the Hills discussed this information with each other, even though they promised their hypnotists that they didn't. Yeah, how would you not for two years? 
Yeah. How do you not talk to your spouse? Well, 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 like there was a, what, a post-hypnotic suggestion to forget everything afterward, which we all know totally works because hypnosis is real. Totally. <laughs> right. <laughs> Over the course of the 1960s, the Hill's descriptions of the aliens also changed. Two weeks before Barney's first hypnosis session, the TV show The Outer Limits featured aliens that look remarkably like the description he gave under hypnosis. Other details from the abduction were similar to some from the film Invaders from Mars. Betty later claimed to have not heard of The Outer Limits when she was asked about it. Barney Hill died at age 46 in 1969. Betty Hill lived until 2004 and spent the rest of her life going to UFO vigils and claiming to have seen dozens, if not hundreds, of alien spacecraft. None of these reports has ever been substantiated. What did the Hills see in the early morning hours of September 1961? There are a few theories. A nearby aircraft warning beacon on a mountain appeared and disappeared quite similarly to the pattern that Betty claimed she saw the aircraft traveling while they were on the highway. The Hills may have also fallen asleep when they stopped to walk their dog, and the warning beacon, sleep deprivation, road monotony, and later hypnosis may have altered their memories. We are coming up on 59 years this year since the Hills have had their strange event, and we will never know for sure what exactly happened that night. Except that they weren't abducted. I, I'm considering doing an episode re-examining the satanic panic because uh, with the widespread revelations of prolific sexual abuse uh, in a lot of places like the Catholic Church and um, perpetrated by people like Harvey Weinstein, that has led to me spending more time questioning whether some of these repressed or recovered memories might actually be non-repressed memories that people just did not feel comfortable talking about until the point at which uh, they were given license to do so. Uh, and hypnosis uh, might have provided a convenient excuse. There were a few long-form uh, podcasts that have recently examined that, one about uh, the Mar McMartin case and one about Martinsville in uh, mm -hmm. Saskatchewan as well. That's interesting. Yeah, I... I, uh, it is really interesting. It's just something that I wanted to bring up because it's something I've been I've been thinking about. Okay, so we're going to move on uh, into the late '80s, and I'm going to give a brief sketch of the Gulf Breeze incident. In 1987. A building contractor in Gulf Breeze, Florida, named Ed Walters, claimed to have sighted a UFO, and he pulled out his camera. Over several weeks, he had several more sightings and took uh, a series of photographs that were later published in the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. And these were stunning photographs showing like a, a traditional alien spacecraft saucer-shaped and many ufologists found these photos incredibly convincing, with uh, famous ufologist Bruce Maccabee asserting that the photos were certainly genuine. One of the things that was so convincing to the ufologists was that, that he took several of the photos in the series with a so-called tamper-proof camera that uh, would mm -hmm. prevent, like, you know, trickery, like double exposures and, and that sort of thing. Some of the photos did appear, uh, I, I only saw a couple, but did appear to show like kind of um, 
a, a little bit of wackiness with the exposure length, but uh, this caused a bit of a stir in UFO circles and in Florida, but it didn't penetrate that far into, uh, into mainstream pop culture, necessarily. Uh, but by 1990, uh, three years later, Ed Walters had moved. And one day, hidden in the attic of Walters' former home, the new residents discovered a styrofoam model that bore a striking resemblance to the photographs. Uh-huh. Craig Myers, a reporter for the Pensacola News Journal, described uh, previous coverage of the story as sensationalist and uncritical, and uh, he then proceeded to recreate every one of Walter's uh, photographs using this model. <laughs> what a piece of evidence to leave behind. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Apparently it was just like kind of shoddily breaks. shoved in a corner with something in front of it. <laughs> why not like just dismantle it and throw <laughs> it out? Like why? why would you keep it? Especially as time goes on and technology evolves. If you still have this old thing that like people are going to find you out sooner, like just get rid of it. Be smarter, guys. Do you uh, <laughs> do you folks watch Murdoch Mysteries at all? My parents do. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that, I don't know. What, I don't know what to, I don't know what, how I feel about that exactly. You know, what? I've seen uh, some I've episodes and I liked it. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that show. Just as a side note, it is delightful. Canadian as all get Incredibly Canadian, is yeah. It, but, is, it is wonderfully Canadian, and that is so oh, heartwarming. Yeah, oh yeah, it's the most Canadian thing ever. Um, <laughs> William Shatner is on it, first of all, as a side note. Um, he has a guest, he's Mark Twain. Well, I know what you say, that this is a vessel of exploration and that your mission is to discover new worlds. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what the, the Spanish said. Six thirty-six. And the Dutch and the Portuguese. It's what all conquerors say. But anyway, if that show is to be believed, people leave really important, poignant evidence just lying around for Murdoch to find. <laughs> so maybe that show is telling us that, yes, people are just that stupid, that they will leave incredibly incriminating things just lying around no one will ever look in my attic uh Hmm. so i i guess it does really i guess i always question that well why would they leave the knife in the locker that's of course he was going to get caught but this story shows that yeah (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that was that made it so convincing um and made uh ufologists like maccabee uh, so sure that these were the real deal was the fact that he used this tamper-proof camera but of course like if, you, if you're taking photos of an actual thing that's just, like, there, that you've hung in, in a tree or whatever, like, yeah, you're taking photos of an actual thing. It's a styrofoam model. <laughs> you, you don't need much trickery in the camera. <laughs> Are you familiar with the fairies in the garden incident from the early 1900s? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking of, too. The uh, Cottingley fairies, I believe. 100% proof that fairies were real, per Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> Not a very skeptical man, that fellow. <laughs> so, for listeners who are not who are not familiar, uh, two uh, English girls uh, made paper cutouts of fairies and stuck them in forest scenes, and then took photographs of them and um, presented them as like they said, "Hey, we found some fairies in the forest, and we took pictures." And they were like people believed them. In people, including famous author uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, famous for inventing uh, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it was only uh, later that some 
more skeptical folks pointed out that uh, many of the images contained running water, uh, which was, of course, blurred. But the fairies that were supposedly uh, flying while the pictures were taken of them, their wings were stock still, (laughs) as if the exposure had been instantaneous, which is, of course, uh, impossible. Especially in the early 1900s. Right, yeah. (laughs) That's my very brief uh, overview of the Gulf Breeze incident. Not much of an incident. Dude uh, made a styrofoam model and took some photos and made bank, and uh, then they found his model. Uh, so, Ian, you wanted to talk about uh, alien autopsy, fact or fiction. So, when Jem uh, graciously asked me to come on the show today, I was uh, very excited. But that was about half an hour before I had to leave for work. Um, and uh, so, I really appreciate the last-minute invite. Thank you, Jem, <laughs> thinking of me at such a late hour. What schmuck can we bring on? <laughs> We've been this trying show? to get Ian on the show again for quite a while, but um, today's invitation was very last minute. I apologize. <laughs> well, no, I, I I do actually appreciate it, and it you know this whole sort of COVID nineteen situation uh, has definitely afforded us a lot more free time. So I'm I was happy to uh, I didn't have anything going on, so it worked out really well. Other than the fact that I had really no time to prepare anything, so in the half an hour that I had before work. And then sometime at work, I thought about what I could speak about. And I, what came to mind was the TV show, Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction. First of all, have any of you fine folks, did you watch it back in the day or subsequently? Oh, yeah. I was all over that. I have watched it subsequently. I've never seen it front to back. I heard about it not back in 95. I think it it aired, but I heard about it in like around 2000. And so I watched some clips. But I never, I was never able at that time to get the the full thing. But it was on Fox, I believe, right? It it was on Fox on August twenty eighth, nineteen ninety five, and it was hosted by none other than Jonathan Frakes, Will Riker himself. This isn't real. It's all a fantasy, and I'm going to end it no matter what it takes. Was was Next Generation off the air by ninety five? Uh, oh, didn't it end in ninety four? You know. 94, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I think it did. Yeah, because it started in 87. Yeah. So it would have ended in 94. It was, yeah, it seven, ended in 94. Yeah. yeah, so it was done. And that made him their number one choice. <laughs> God. <laughs> I, I sort of thought it was sort of like Jonathan Frakes, you know, needing money, wandered onto the Fox set and was, you know... <laughs> needing more you know beard oil because he had run out or what have you No, that was when he did the um the urban myths show was jonathan frakes was out of money god there were so many of those star trek actors who who just like uh, um quark what's his name um it's the actor who plays armin zimmerman Zimmerman. armin armin shimmerman thank you (laughs) armin shimmerman uh was in what the bleep do we know um there might have been another star trek actor he in was there. also in Buffy. um and uh, leonard nimoy of course was famously in that um uh mystery mongering show yeah like a lot of star trek actors uh like there's there's a big crossover in i guess the fandoms between sort of paranormal tv uh and uh sci-fi so it's understandable just it's always just kind of disappointing to see an actor you really like shilling for something that's really yeah. bad <laughs> yeah that's unfortunate but hey you know 
The more frakes, the better. Anyway, I just really wanted to briefly uh, just talk about it because I remember watching this show back in the day and being absolutely glued to the TV. And I mean, you know, 95, I was 11 years old. And um, it garnered a viewership of 11 million people to watch this, this yeah. show. Wow. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't recall. And, I, you know, I tried to find it actually t- in preparation for this. I tried to see if I could find it online to watch it. And it was shockingly unfindable on online. So that means that it's either like the alien, like Fox is either really, you know, stringent about uh, people posting this stuff or it was just terrible and no one in their right mind would post it. But either way, I was unable to find it. But I seem to recall like it being a very big deal yeah, at the time. Yeah, it was. In fact, it was sort of um, it sort of likened to the Sapruder film, you know, for how sort of stark and matter of fact and all this kind of stuff that it was and if you're not familiar with it uh, and you can't find it because i tried to find it myself and it's basically a 17 minute video of what appears to be an alien the typical gray big-brained big-eyed you know little green men kind of thing um is being uh there's an autopsy of course uh, hence the name kind of obvious uh, anyway um and it looks extremely real and it's a little unsettling if you watch it it does seem if you didn't know any better it looks very uh realistic and grim and you know like you would imagine watching a real autopsy but uh of course as you know we all as we found out uh, apparently it wasn't until relatively recently that like two like in the in the this came out in 1995 so it was in the 2000s mid 2000s that it finally came to light uh because uh, there was another documentary made about it that the original makers of this thing had made a uh, let me see if I can get the uh, the word oh a reconstruction <laughs> right yeah so they allege that they watched a real they watched a real alien autopsy and because that footage was unfortunately damaged to the point where they could no longer reproduce it uh, very conveniently I might add uh, they decided to do a restoration or a reconstruction using things like chicken entrails uh raspberry jam sheep brains allegedly um (laughs) and uh, this was this this was in london that this was done so i want to make a shout out to the sc crosby wholesale butchers smithfield meat market of london for supplying (laughs) the said part so if they're still in business good for you there's your plug makers to the queen (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i just wanted to uh, uh see if anybody remembered this 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 wonderful tv program that was uh you know early 90s uh and how it took it took 10 years or more to finally come out as being a well they never i don't think not that i could find that they admitted that it was 100 percent falsified they just insisted that well we couldn't get the original footage so we did a recreation and that's what you see Damn fine recreation, I might Yeah. <laughs> so, like, Santilli, the guy who made it, insisted that it was real for a long time until he was with this uh, follow-up documentary that was made in the 2000s. Um, they're like, no, look, here's the evidence that it is fake. And he said, okay, okay, okay. I, I wouldn't say it's fake. It's a reconstruction. And then he came up with this... Um, this elaborate description that they had, you know, he'd seen the, the, the original film and decided to purchase it. But by the time he got the money together to make the purchase, then like they hadn't stored the film properly. So it was damaged. And there's only a few, (laughs) 
<laughs> he said uh, uh, a few of the original frames were actually inserted into the recreation. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I guess, Fight Club style. <laughs> like, just splice, splice a few frames in. Good reference. It, it wasn't until 2006 that Santilli admitted that it was uh, a falsification, uh, at least to some degree. But uh, apparently during the time, like while they, while they were prepping it for broadcast, like all of the guy's stories started falling apart. And a bunch of the people who were in the production were like, this is fake. And Fox brought down the hammer and said, you have to cut out everything that says this is fake because if we make it clear that this is fake as part of the broadcast, we won't do numbers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Evie. And I think there's a uh, a theme to all of these sort of things that uh, I- I'm sure that there are some, you know, uh, I don't know, sincere, I guess is the word I would use, uh, alien folks out there who are just in it for the the one universe or whatever. But if this 2% that you talked about, it seems like you just got to follow the money. And that's, that is the answer to all of these. That seems to be the thing that uh, binds all these things together. Somebody's trying to make some cash. I will posit that Betty Hill was a true believer. Mm-hmm. She didn't, like she did uh, talks for, uh, for free and she believed it to the end of her life. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like it sounds like she then got caught up with the other 2% that just want to make a buck or, get famous or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. Well, you also end up with an incentive to keep believing. Yeah. Uh, you see this in conspiracy circles a lot, too. Like, even if you start off as, like, honestly convinced, th- there is an incentive not to become unconvinced because then you lose your community, you lose your fame, you lose you lose everything that's... Well, that goes back to the Flat Earther video we watched. That one woman was so close to connecting the dots that maybe this isn't right. Yeah. And she just couldn't push herself over that line. So I think we're going to end this episode with a discussion of recent disclosures. Yay! Ashlyn. Tell us all about the, what is it, the Navy admitting that there are aliens and releasing footage or whatever? Uh, So on April 27th of this year, the U.S. Department of Defense released three videos of what they call unidentified aerial phenomena, which is a term they admit that they use because UFO carries too much cultural baggage and stigma. Nonetheless, the headlines followed. Pentagon's release of UFO videos, a big deal for believers in extraterrestrial life, from the CBC. Also... Those UFO videos are real, the Navy says, but please stop saying UFO, from the Washington Post. (laughs) The three videos had all been previously released to the public via leaks, uh, so they had been on the internet for quite a while, uh, and they had been published on To The Stars Academy, a UFO research site, which was apparently started by a former member of Blink-182. Well, you know. Apparently it's quite famous. Uh, And their videos are very dramatic, and there's like 30 seconds of this UFO uh, info and like a minute and a half of, this is a video previously unseen on the internet, it is very important, yada yada yada. I was was thinking that it would just be like, and then it was like a three minute ad for his new solo album. (laughs) No, I think he's doing uh, pretty well for himself, so he's just pouring all of his money into this (laughs) UFO research. So the Pentagon said in their press release that the reason they chose to share the videos publicly was to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that has been circulating was real, or whether or not there was more to the videos. 
There are three videos total. Uh, they're called Gimbal, Go Fast, and Flur? Flyer? F-L-I-R. In the Flur video, recorded in 2004, it's extremely boring in my opinion. It consists of a tic-tac-shaped object, which has been recorded for a while. I believe you mean cigar-shaped, Ashlyn? I thought that's what we decided to call that shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a very tiny cigar. It's not, not the size that matters, Ashlyn. Well, to impress all the ufologists, it just takes all the small things. Oh, <laughs> God. How dare you get that song stuck in my head for the first time in 20 years? <laughs> all the small things. I just listened to that song today, and I'm not even kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a Blink-182 song? <laughs> so it's uh, just kind of zooming along, and when the camera zooms in on it, it appears to kind of jump. Uh, something the commenters describe as obviously supersonic travel, <laughs> but which can much more easily be understood as an artifact of the zoom as the camera relocks on the target. Like, to me, it just seems super obvious that it's zooming along with the locked on camera and then they enlarge it and it kind of goes, Whoop, but it locks on immediately and then it doesn't do that again. Come on. <laughs> It is pretty much identical to footage taken of confirmed jets that are flying at a similar distance. And I have no idea why this is considering interesting UFO footage. The only thing that makes it interesting at all is that the pilot's voice that you can hear in the recording, he doesn't seem to know what it is. And so that, of course, has been played up in as even the pilot who has hundreds of hours of experience is baffled by this mysterious phenomena. Uh, okay, so that's the first one. Uh, again, this was recorded in 2004. It's not very interesting. The next video, also recorded in 2004, pretty sure, uh, is referred to as Gimbal, and it shows a dark object against a gray background. As it travels, the glare around it seems to rotate. So the object itself doesn't rotate, but the light around it kind of goes around in a circle, which is kind of interesting looking. Uh, so a gimbal is a kind of support that allows an object to rotate on a single axis. Cameras use them to stabilize video, and they can have multiple gimbals per camera. So a three-axis gimbal will stabilize a camera, whether it's going forward or back, left or right, up and down. In the video, the glare or the flare behind the black blob rotates while the horizon stays steady. And uh, there's a guy named Mick West who has some extensive debunking stuff about all three of these videos. And he actually replicated this in his garage. Uh, he used his garage door as the horizon because it had a nice flat line on it. And he used the stabilizing uh, stuff and the software to tell it like this is the horizon, make that stay stable. Uh, and then when he placed a light bulb uh, as the light source and moved the camera around, the video stabilizer kept the garage door stable, but the light, you could tell because the camera was moving, uh, the light goes and rotates around it, even though the video looks like it's staying stable. So that was a pretty cool demonstration of this might be what's going on in this video. Nice. Uh, and you can see in videos of these uh, really fancy cameras that these jets have, the the cameras try their best not to have to do like a full rotation. So they do a lot of that moving back and forth in order to keep their thing in frame. They also talk a lot about how these infrared cameras, the things that appear on them are going to be a different shape than the actual thing 
because what they're picking up on is like the infrared from the engines. So you'll often get like three or four big blobs of black that represents a plane because that's what they're seeing off the engines. And it'll be bigger than the plane itself is because the heat signature yeah. is bigger than mm-hmm. the plane. So that was kind of interesting, uh, but also fairly easy to explain and very easy to demonstrate once you kind of understand what's going on with the camera. And I mean, the the video, even when it was leaked, was named Gimbal. So that gives you kind of an idea that they knew what was going on. Right. Uh, so the third video uh, is the most recently shot, uh, 2015, and was released in 2017, leaked in 2017, rather. I think is the most interesting, but it also has a pretty mundane explanation, sadly. It appears to capture a small blob, which is moving incredibly fast over the ocean. You can see the ocean waves in the background, and it looks like it's just speeding along. There's a TV show called Unidentified, which this Blink-182 guy was uh, involved in. And uh, they, you know, have one of those little sessions where everybody's watching the video and then they go, Oh, it's going so fast! Oh my god, I can't believe it! No technology exists that could do this! Uh, and they, they claim that it's going like two-thirds the speed of sound or something, and it's very close to the water. They keep saying like, oh, it's just sipping right over the waves. The video, though, helpfully includes a lot of data from the plane. It has all sorts of things about how far this object is, how much it's zoomed in, how fast the plane is going, what angle the wings are at, so you can tell whether the plane is turning or not. Super interesting and easy from this data, if you know what math is involved, to determine how far away this object is, how big the object is, and how fast the object is going. If you know the math. (laughs) (laughs) Which Mr. Blink-182 does not. (laughs) But he had lots of money to hire those kinds of people. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I don't understand the math, but I watched the video and it makes sense to me. uh, (laughs) From from the math that this guy put together with the the fancy angles and stuff. So basically, uh, they were able to determine that it was... Likely at about 13,000 feet off of the ocean. Just skimming those waves. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Whereas the jet was at 25,000 feet. So it was about halfway between the plane and the ocean at 13,000 feet. So because of the way that the camera works, especially once it's locked onto the object, uh, the perceived motion of the object against the ocean surface, even if it was like stationary or extremely slow, would be the same speed as the jet itself. And that is only magnified by the high zoom that it was on. It was at the maximum zoom possible to lock onto this object. Mm-hmm. You got some parallax going on. Exactly. They were using a camera called the Advanced Targeting Forward-Looking Infrared, or ATFLIR, which I assume is where the name of the other thing came from, too. And like I said, it was at the maximum zoom, so this thing was totally invisible to the naked eye. They could only see it with their fancy infrared camera, which used uh, radar as well. So again, using the data from the video itself that came from the plane... It was probably traveling between 28 and 100 knots. And at 13,000 feet, that's consistent with either a bird or a weather balloon that is traveling with the wind. (laughs) (laughs) No known technology, Ashlyn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And they kept going like, oh, well, nothing that doesn't have like a source of propellant and lift could stay aloft that that long or go that fast. But yes, a bird and a weather balloon both fit that description. Uh, Somebody in the comments uh, even was talking about like, well, 13,000 feet seems pretty high for a bird. 
But then he looked up a bunch of birds, and apparently that's not very high at all for a bunch of, like, the big predators and stuff. Hmm. Like, some of the migratory birds will travel at, like, I think I saw 33,000 feet or something ridiculous. That's surprising. Yeah. I'm only going on this one guy's chart, but uh, because... So basically, the Metabunk decided that it was almost certainly a weather balloon because they have these cool little radar disks that the... Uh, that the camera would be able to lock onto, whereas the camera probably would have ignored a bird. Hmm. But apparently birds fly really high. Who knew? So, probably a weather balloon. Probably not going very fast. But the effect, as Jem said, is parallax. And it's just our human uh, desire to match up the things that we see with our experience that tells us, uh, that tries to trick our brain into saying, like, this thing is going super fast. There were a few videos in the comments as well of like watching a balloon float through the air, but because you're focusing on the balloon and not the background, the background is just speeding by. It looks like the balloon is going, you know, a thousand miles an hour, whereas it's just like bobbing along in the air. Anyway, that's the third video. Go fast. So those are the three videos that the U.S. Department of Defense has admitted. We took these. They're real videos. We didn't. They, I don't know if they said specifically they didn't tamper with them, but the idea of putting them out was to say, like, you know, there is nothing more to these videos. This is all we have. So they probably have some people who could do this math. Why didn't they just do that? <laughs> uh, probably because uh, secrets. Releasing them with any kind of analysis and conclusions would mean discussing sensitive equipment, like how their cameras work, uh, stuff like that, how their radar stuff works, uh, some issues with the infrared that, you know, are not, they don't want that stuff getting out, that it doesn't work 100% all the time. So, and they probably are technically UFOs or UAPs. I assume that the military didn't put any great deal of time into figuring out exactly what each of these non-threatening blobs was. Uh, so they can maybe go with a clear conscience and say, yeah, we, uh, they're unidentified. We don't know what they are. But there's no reason that they would find them suspicious. Right, yeah. There are also some stuff about how there has been a lot more incursions into uh, airspace because of the wide availability of like fancy drones and stuff from the public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there has been a lot more incidents of pilots in the Air Force reporting things that I don't know what this is, but it's in my airspace. Let's figure it out. But, you know, could be aliens, but probably not. Like the the possibility is there, but it's extremely small compared to it's a drone or it's a, another jet or it's a balloon. Always a weather balloon, Ashlyn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It won't stop the pilots of these jets from going on ridiculous shows like Unidentified and spouting off about how they've never seen anything like it. It doesn't look like any tech they're familiar with which gives so much more credibility than they deserve. <laughs> and I'm sure they go on those shows for free as well, don't they? They're not being... They're, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so those are the uh, the disclosures from the U.S. government. I mean, the amount of headlines that just went off about the Navy says the UFOs are real were just so over the top and so unnecessary and so credulous. Gotta get those clicks. When the press release is basically like... Yeah, we made those videos. Okay, I went and looked up a whole list of Blink-182 song titles to make more puns, and wow, do they sing about aliens a lot. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have a song called Aliens Exist. Hmm. Good to know. So On this has brand. been in his uh, mind for a while. I am still a skeptic, yes, you know me. Been 
Speaking of not giving anybody any warning, I think it would be fun to end this show. You know, things are pretty grim in the world right now. Uh, I assume they'll only be more grim when this episode comes out next week. But have you folks been enjoying anything lately? I've been enjoying Animal Crossing. I've been enjoying running around my little island and terraforming it and fishing. And uh, I even got the supplies to make my own little amiibo card so I can invite all of my favorite villagers. Uh, they're all adorable and they love me and I need that kind of mm -hmm. praise in my life. So Ashlyn was even kind enough to rescue one of my villagers. Um, Kira has also been enjoying Animal Crossing, but we were horrified to discover that she <laughs> has, she tends to just blast through the dialogue without reading it. Um, and she had uh, told her and Huxley's favorite villager, Hamlet, that yes, it would be great if he moved to a different island. <laughs> and so he was gone. But Ashlyn got us, uh, she made us an amiibo card. <laughs> and he is now living happily back on the island alongside his new friend, Pietro the Clown, who is terrifying. Yay. <laughs> uh, I also would like to mention, uh, I just finished reading uh, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It is a new prequel to The Hunger Games. Uh, I only found out about it because of a uh, Facebook thread that is similar to this conversation where people were discussing things that brought them some small amount of joy during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, every time I mention it anywhere, ev there's a whole bunch of other people who are like, <laughs> there's a new book out. Uh, so I'd like to mention that if anybody's a fan of The Hunger Games, there is a new prequel. It weirdly follows the youth of uh, the person that we know in the three main books as President Snow hmm. uh, and kind of makes him into a sympathetic character in the beginning. But uh, don't worry, they fix that. <laughs> but right. it, was, uh, it was a really compelling read, just like the other three. So now I'm back into reading the other three because I couldn't leave it there at the prequel. Nice. What am I into these days? I... I'm so I'm always like a generation behind all the video games, um, and I've been hearing nothing but Animal Crossing stuff. And unfortunately, I'm not privy, so I did not understand a single thing you guys were saying about it. <laughs> um, but considering that I'm so far behind, I've been actually playing GTA Online for some reason. I don't really know why. And um, I am one of those people that if I'm a fan of something, I I tend to be have to be obsessed with it and know more than the next person knows about it. Um, Jem, I'm sure you can attest to that. Mm -hmm. So I am a huge fan of Harry Potter, but I never read the books. Uh, so I'm actually going through all those books and I'm currently on um, uh, the Order of the Phoenix and I'm thoroughly enjoying them. Despite the unfortunate remarks of J.K. Rowling. Herself. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, don't check Twitter. Yeah, she's the worst. <laughs> she went full turf this week. I feel like she's she's done that a couple times and people just forget. Yeah, you know, there's oh, a yeah. big conversation there to have there about like separating art from the artist and that maybe we can have that on another episode, but I'm just going to read the book for now. It was on sale for like six bucks, so I bought it and that's the end yep. of that. The, the books are definitely enjoyable. I, th I think that they do betray uh, a little bit of J.K. Rowling's bad politics uh, in a few places. Uh, like, uh, for example, the uh, house elves who love being slaves. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, to name a single yeah. example. <laughs> um, but. Uh, or the goblins. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes. People are saying that's a stretch. That is not a stretch. The fact that every bad character yeah. is fat and ugly. Um, I got a whole list. But like, <laughs> hey, like I, I, I'm currently reading uh, Redwall, so mm, I'm not, I'm not about to throw stones. Oh, <laughs> nostalgia. Yeah. I don't know what that is. There's a bunch of like young adult fantasy novels about rats and mice and stuff. Living in an like an abbey called Redwall Mm. Abbey. There was a there was a cartoon TV series. Yeah, adorable woodland creatures. But what I've been most enjoying lately, I've been working a lot again, but that's that should be mostly behind me now. And I've been reading. Boy, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but it is riveting. I've been reading Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill, uh, which chronicles his investigative reporting uh, into Harvey Weinstein at NBC before they killed the story, uh, essentially at Weinstein's request, and he had to uh, take it elsewhere. And he, you know, it's 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 pretty incredible. He was like uh, followed by a bunch of Israeli ex-black ops people uh, who were hired by Weinstein. He, um, uh, yeah, it, it was a whole thing. Um, it, it's a really interesting read uh and it is absolutely infuriating like it just me like i read it every night before i go to bed and it just makes me so mad <laughs> and that is a terrible decision stop that uh, but it's a it's a good read yes why do you do that to yourself i know like i have so much trouble sleeping after because I, I just get so like so like worked up and angry that so many of these people who did these terrible things and protected weinstein for so long still have jobs and <laughs> are still working at NBC uh, and and everywhere. And, you know, like like we talk about with these these protests that are going on right now with the killing of George Floyd um, and all of the other people of color who've been murdered both in the United States and Canada and elsewhere. Like, for every one that you do hear about, for every one that you do see, how many people do you not learn about because there wasn't a camera there? Um, and like with Weinstein, like, like, I'm sure this, this goes on all the time, you know, (laughs) and it's horrifying. Anyway, uh, good book. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend it. There's, um, so Ronan Farrow's story was originally, um, uh, printed in the New Yorker and there, right before his story ran, which documented a bunch of Weinstein's actual abuse, I shouldn't say actual abuse, uh, there, was a, there was a story on Weinstein's uh, cl- claims of sexual harassment, but not specifically uh, uh, physical abuse, um, that ran in the New York Times um, by uh, another pair of reporters. And they also have a, a book out that is less sort of thrillery, more sort of by-the-book straight reporting. Um, uh, Catch and Kill is is very narrative, and it's about Pharaoh's actual investigation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so that's that's something you could read. I've also been playing uh, a game that came out recently called Signs of the Sojourner, and that is something that is actually bringing me joy um, because it is a game set in a world kind of destroyed, but it is a very hopeful, interesting game where... It's kind of like a deck building game, but the the thing that you're doing with your deck is just having conversations with people and trying to like meet them where they're at and engage with what they're saying. Is that's kind of the mechanics of the game? Uh, so you play cards and they play cards and you take turns. And if you can match your cards and chain them together uh, with the 
the other person uh, who's, you know, played by the computer, then uh, you can have a good conversation and, you know, both have a positive outcome. But if you can't make matches with your cards, then you end up having like a conversation that leaves both of you angry and you can't, you can't like do the thing that you're trying to do in that place. It's really interesting. It's charming. It's not too long. It's a kind of a, almost like a roguelike game, but it's, it does something quite different with that kind of card mechanic that I haven't seen in a game before. Uh, and it's just lovely. And you can find it on itch.io or steam. I think it's coming to switch eventually. Um, it's not too expensive. Uh, check it out. It's cool. Uh, music and art are lovely. Is this a game you can play with another person? No, it is a single player kind of narrative <laughs> game, but you, you so so the player that you're playing against is like a, a person that you meet in a town or a person that you're traveling on the road with. Um, but you're basically mm. like uh, somebody who runs, it's kind of set in a post-apocalypse um, where you're running a store after the death of your mother. Uh, you, you take over her store and you have to sort of go out on runs with a caravan to get supplies at different towns. And so you've got to like meet people and make connections. And one of the really cool things is like different regions tend to have different kinds of cards. And so as you venture farther and farther away from your hometown, you pick up cards from other regions. But then when you come back, your, your, your cards, like the way you talk and the way you communicate with people is fundamentally different. So you have a harder time having conversations with your own neighbors anymore. Wow. Because you've been changed by the experience of this this long journey. It's it's really interesting. <laughs> hmm. And it's fun. Like it's like mechanically it's pretty straightforward, but it's it's neat. Cool. I'll check it out. Um I've also been enjoying Animal Crossing. I'm relieved right now that something that has been sort of hanging over my head running a, an AGM is done today, so I've got, like, nothing on my plate for giant panic projects. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm looking forward to a book that I pre-ordered that will be out in September. It's by Sim Kern, and it's called Depart, Depart. It's um, cli-fi, like dystopian climate fiction, about uh, a flood, and it's queer as hell, and I've been excited watching their journey as a first-time published author on Twitter, and I was happy to... Uh, to pre-order this book so review incoming in a few months cool laura i just finished reading eleanor oliphant is completely fine and it was very enjoyable it was bizarre at first not the book so much but the the character was very odd and i enjoyed how the story was uh built up, I suppose, as you went on. I liked how different bits were revealed and uh, I liked the character evolution and it was it was a good read. It wasn't what I was expecting, but it was it was really enjoyable. Okay, well, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. And it was wonderful to have you on the podcast again, Ian. Hopefully we can do this more often. Yes, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm always here. Give me a shout if you folks want me on again. I'll be I'll be happy to come on. I had a, I had a wonderful time. It was great to see you folks. Tonight. And uh, thanks to those people who still um, open their wallets to us uh, every month and uh, help us with hosting fees to keep the podcast going. Um, and thanks to those of you who uh, head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. We really appreciate those. So what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? 
Uh, so are we doing my happy topic or your depressing topic? Up to you. It's your show. Okay, I'm going to do the happy topic then. <laughs> uh, this is something I just thought of today when I was thinking about, like, I wonder who the first peoples were that used a toothbrush-like device. You know, who was the first human society who chewed up a twig in order to clean their teeth. Uh, I would like to talk about the history and science behind various public health objects or initiatives. So things like the toothbrush or tissues or porta potties. So we're all going to pick one and explore how that shaped our society and uh, our lack of death from various diseases. I'm excited that I'll get to talk about Inya Semmelweis again, uh, unless somebody else grabs it first. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Yes. Did you know that we got a second cat? I did not know that. Jem allowed a second ferocious beast in his house? She is so sweet. Her name is Snowflake. Yay. They also have a second bathroom now. I'm much more excited about that. Second bathroom. (laughs) Where is the second bathroom? You guys didn't move, did you? Nope. No, no. We put it in the basement by the pop fridge. Yeah. The the pop fridge. It is great. <laughs> oh, the pop fridge. That, oh, that takes me back. <laughs> It'll yeah. still be here when you come to visit, Ian. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, a few more months. September is when we're thinking about moving back, so. Nice. Woohoo! Yeah. The pop fridge even occasionally has beer in it, so. What? I've loosened up a little. They have Hellion children. They drink now. More often now. (laughs) (laughs) I always drank. We were playing a board game with them the other day, and the children just would not go to bed. And they came into the room, and Huxley was like, can I have some of that? And Laura was like, no, it's alcohol. And Huxley goes, can I smell the alcohol? (laughs) We're so excited. Yeah. We were playing a board game over the internet. We were sitting here at home just dying laughing at Huxley. Oh, he has a really cute new haircut now. Who, you? (laughs) No, not me. No, Jem is in dire need of one. (laughs) I am absolutely hideous. I I can't even, like, this is, my hair is starting to thin quite a bit too at the front. And it's really long at the back. I'm developing a skullet. It's not good. I hear you, man. <laughs> L- Laura, Laura. Skullet. Today, Laura was pointing out my thinning widow's peak to uh, her parents. <laughs> you did. You alluded oh. to it. And then I re- I was like, oh, Hush. interesting. And then you 
I said, it's not so bad. And you said, it is on this side. And I realized it and I went, oh. And <laughs> so you, you got out your laser pointer. <laughs> My name is Jem Newman and, oh, that's not how it goes. <laughs> it's, it, it is and will always be the Jem show. <laughs> well, hopefully when you cross the mountains again, you can appear on the show more often. Yes. <laughs> Remember what Ian said about not asking him questions directly? <laughs> yeah. I think I heard we should have you more on the show more often, I think is what you said, Jim. So I said, yes, as enthusiastically as I could. Yeah, my audio is particularly bad on this call. <laughs> Sorry. I was trying to piece it together in my head, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I knew what Jim said. So I just went with the positive, the affirmative, and that was that. <laughs> Yes. No, I was just laughing because there was a big gap after that. (laughs) That's all. Yes, it sounds like it's one of those dream sequences in a bad TV show, you know, like (laughs) Twin Peaks or something. Whoa. I knew you were going to say Twin Peaks. Shots fired. (laughs) It also sounded a little bit like you were speaking Elvish. It was rather strange for (laughs) a second there. And what is the language? It's not Elvish. What's the language called? The Black Tongue of Mordor. (laughs) That's the uh, the language on the ring. But uh, you might be thinking of Sindarin. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you, yes. Or High Elvish. I forget the name for High Elvish. High Elvish. Quenya? I knew you. I knew all of you would know the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't pull it up off of the uh, tip of my tongue, but... (laughs) So it sounds like the echo is a lot better with Laura muted. But Laura, please unmute when you would like to talk. Uh, for instance, during your segment, or during other segments, when you <laughs> would like to talk. Or whenever you want to give Jem shit. <laughs> yeah. I deserve it constantly, so. Uh, we are going to start with me, though. Um... <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing. Thank you for clarifying. Somehow Venusian sounds so much more made up than Martian. (laughs) (laughs) It really, it really does. It sounds fancier. Like Venetian. Oh, shit. What's it called? Oh, sorry. My brain is just melted at the moment. Hold on. It's coming to me. Just, well, it's not coming to me. I'm looking it up. Lauren, you're editing, right? You'll cut all this out, right? Oh, I'm editing. This is Jim's problem. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on at your place, Ian? <laughs> it sounds like somebody's being murdered in the other room repeatedly. Like regularly, too, not just yeah. once. Well, this is the big city. Yeah, this is, this is, this is a pretty <laughs> rough town, you know? So it's, uh, who knows? Uh, I, I think my wife is playing an online game. People just regularly getting murdered behind your yeah. wall. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think my wife is playing a game with uh, her family, uh, and they're having, clearly they're having a blast, so much so that it sounds like they're murdering each other, so that's how you know you're having a good time. I'm surprised. Must be Mario Kart. I'm surprised you can hear that. That's pretty crazy. So I can barely hear what Jem is saying, but you can hear what my wife is doing in the next room. That's crazy. Oh yeah, it's coming through very clearly. (laughs) You do have a better mic. (laughs) Your setup is good. Time for you to leave.
ghoulish goulash. Ghoulish goulash? Ghoulish goulash. <laughs> <laughs>